So I think that's one way to prepare is just you know move up the stack, right? Think of it as a tool. And if you're a copywriter, that's great. Now, instead of writing the copy, start being creative about the stories. What story do you want to tell? How do you want to you know, make it more succinct? And think about tools around that. I think creativity is kind of the highest calling as humans that we have. We, you know, creativity in all aspects, right? We're very good at building systems, but that's a little function of creativity as well. Like you got to think, uh, how can I do this? How can I do that? So I think creativity is actually what we all should be aspiring to, to do, and then and using tools to achieve whatever our creative minds you know, come up with. Hello, and welcome back to the Nucci Show. It's been a minute, and I'm excited to get back to you guys. Today, my guest is Vinny Lingham. Vinny's the co-founder of Weight Room, Gift, Civic Key, and the Explorers NFT. He's a seed investor in Solana, Filecoin, and Rendercoin, and a general partner at Multicoin Cap and Newtown Partners. I'm particularly excited to have Vinny on because back in 2013, 2014, when I was first getting into Bitcoin, Vinny was one of those voices that was just way ahead of the curve and somebody who was very influential on my journey into cryptocurrency adoption. Uh, In today's chat, we get into Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, AI, his NFT drop coming up, Explorers, and so much more. Uh, I know you guys are going to love this one, so please enjoy. Vinny, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Very excited to have you on. Many years ago, you were super instrumental into getting me into Bitcoin in, uh, (laughs) I want to say, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. The early days back when I would say Bitcoin and people had no idea what I was talking yeah, about. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. They were simpler times. Yeah. I want to take it back to Bitcoin though. We're in this new world of Bitcoin. Uh, we've got ordinals coming out. We have a potential looming recession. Where do you see the future of Bitcoin like today? You, you've always kind of had an interesting outlook on it. And I was kind of interested in your take on the current landscape of Bitcoin. Yeah, my take right now is I think Bitcoin's going to be range bound for a while. So, you know, 25 to 35K probably in that range. There obviously is always a possibility of a breakout and it going skyrocketing. But I think a lot, it's largely driven by macro situation as opposed to Bitcoin's fundamentals itself right now. And what I mean by that is, as we've seen, the correlation between Bitcoin and the stock markets is actually pretty high, you know, at least on, a, on an annual basis. And so everything's kind of down and the, the Fed money printers are off. And so I think, you know, it's, it's a risk on asset that people want to own. Yeah, it may change. It may, you know, the store of value hypothesis is not, is not true yet, we, as we know, because people were born in at 69,000 sitting underwater now at 29. So that still needs time to play out if it ever becomes true. You know, I think practically right now it's a, it's a, it's a risk on play if you think that the world's going to move away from the U.S. dollar potentially, or governments start looking for other places to put their money instead of U.S. treasuries. So it's all linked to the macro situation. I think it's a pretty good bet, though, to be honest. I mean, buying Bitcoin at these levels is probably going to be a good investment on balance. And I think Bitcoin's probably going to go up quite significantly from here. But I, I think when it hits or gets close to or surpasses you know, $100,000, I think the the, the the lashback from governments are going to be pretty strong, uh, and I mean the U.S. government in particular, because the moment Bitcoin becomes a threat to you know some sort of dollar hegemony, it's it's going to take fire. And, and by the way, we're already seeing this, right? The government's going after Coinbase; they're going after everyone. Like the, the, the regulators are stepping in, 
and maybe not specifically on Bitcoin, but in crypto in general, but it's all part of the same pool, at least of, of, of capital. And, you know, I think everyone has to own some Bitcoin. I think it's, you know, if you don't own some Bitcoin in your portfolio, it's kind of silly. But I'd say I'm, I'm reasonably bullish on Bitcoin. I'm not, you know, mad bullish on it. And crypto is very unique. Every single person has their own sort of risk tolerance, uh, their own sort of, you know, risk reward that they want to, they want to go after. And, and you know, everyone's got a unique set of circumstances. So saying buy something or sell something is, is very personal, actually. You can say, hey, I'm buying or, hey, I'm selling. And that's fine. That's a, a signal. But it doesn't help unless you know the person's financial situation. If I said to you, hey, I'm buying Bitcoin. And I say that, you know, it, like, well, the question should be, well, how much Bitcoin do you have? What percentage of your portfolio? Why are you adding more to it? Why are you, you know, so... Just because I'm buying means nothing. Let's say I own no Bitcoin. I'm saying I'm buying Bitcoin. Well, that's great. If you own, if 80% of your portfolio is Bitcoin, should you buy more? Probably not. And so it's very personal. And so I, I think like we spend a lot of time in crypto, Twitter, and all over the, the internet, like having people show what they're doing. And I think without context, it doesn't really help. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. It's something I learned early in the NFT space was I would watch whale wallets and then try to buy and sell what they were doing. But as you said, you didn't know whether it was a short-term trade, a long-term trade. Like, really, you, if they had insider information, like, what was going on? And without context, you're kind yeah. of fumbling around in the dark. I do want to ask you something, you know, traditionally, Bitcoin has followed the four-year happening cycle. And, you know, you have that the happening happen, and then mm-hmm. six months to a year later, we have this, this huge parabolic run-up. I feel like we're reaching diminishing returns with that. Do you think we're going to continue to see those parabolic cycles, or do you think that that has kind of played out at this point? I don't think parabolic, but I do think we'll see some sort of growth. So the, the, the having cuts miners' uh, revenue and their ability to sell Bitcoin into the market, and so it does have an impact on the supply demand imbalance and 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 the and the float. So I, I would say it's going to have an impact, and it, the having is a year away, you know, thirteen months away. Probably means Bitcoin goes into it at about. If history is anything to look at, Bitcoin will probably be. 60 to 70,000 bucks in the next, you know, 12 to 14 months. So, but Bitcoin almost always doubles in, in the run up to the halving from where it was a year prior. And so I think that's a good sign. But, you know, I was saying to someone else last night, a pretty wealthy investor, and I was saying to him that, you know, I think that there's, there's going to be a flight to quality in this year for crypto. And so I think that we've got so much noise out there. It's just, you know, people send me stuff all the time and I look at it and I'm like, why would I put money there where I could be buying legit projects that have been around for, you know, three, four, five years. They've got user bases, they've got growth, they've got more transactions. And so, you know, like buying Solana right now is probably a better idea than buying some new L1 that's coming on the scene and, you know, with the hype cycle. Yeah, sure. If you want to trade hype, that's a different world. But if you want to make, you know, good long-term investments, get behind projects that have been there for a while that actually have progress and moats around what they're doing. Yeah. As an early, I know you were an early investor in Solana. Mm-hmm. It's an ecosystem I followed and, and bought into pretty early on and, and got involved in the NFTs and all that. A lot of people have speculated that with the death of FTX and SPF's involvement with Solana, that they might struggle to get back on their feet in the next bull market. What would you say to that? Do you think that Solana's dead? Do you think they're going to have a comeback story? Like, where do you think they are in their journey? I think... Like many people and organizations, uh, FTX played a important role in getting Solana off the ground. But I think Solana stands at its own two feet now. I mean, the community is very strong. The the developers are, are still committed. Projects are rolling out. There'll be some churn, people moving from one place to another, etc. 
people leave the Solana chain and go to Ethereum, whatever that happens. But I think the the fundamentals of the technology hasn't changed, and I think people are still motivated right now to build on Solana, and it's still the fastest, cheapest chain out there, and I think that's that that's important. And they still, you know, Solana still does more transactions than pretty much every other chain combined every day. So, you know, it's it's a high volume chain, and it's it's staying up pretty well. I mean, people give it grief. It had a bit of downtime as it was scaling up, and so did Twitter, you know, in the early days, and so. It's part of it's part of building tech. I don't think it's anything to worry about, and I think we've we've seen some really good. Sta- I mean, Solana's been stable for a while now. I haven't seen an outage for a while. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those products. Like when I work with it and it's working, it's it feels like the way I imagine blockchain mm-hmm. should work. Exactly. The Phantom Wallet's it's super you know snappy and sexy, and it's just it's a nice interface. All right, I want to move over really quickly to um, just Ethereum as a whole. We've had some major changes, and we had Shanghai come through, and people can unstake and stake. Do you have any opinion on, on where Ethereum is at in, in its general? It used to follow Bitcoin pretty closely, but now I think we have a, a deflationary mechanic coming in. Any just broad thoughts on Ethereum? Yeah, so, I, I, I mean, I actually bought a whole bunch of Ethereum at like 1470 something. You know, pretty happy with progress since then, um, $1,900, So, I and I'm I think I've I've now owned more Ethereum now than I've ever owned. So, and I've I've never been a user Ethereum fan, but I I actually use it a lot and I like it. And so, um, I think it's it's definitely if you look at like Bitcoin being number one, Ethereum is clearly number two. You got to own it, right? If you want to be in crypto, you got to own some Bitcoin. You have to own some Ethereum, and then you can argue about three, four, and five. You know, I'm obviously very bullish on Filecoin. Uh, long, long term, I think the the short term distractions is just you know, it's the, the price movements don't really matter to me as much as um, what 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 are they building, how many people are using the, the network, how much data is being stored, how you know the miner activity, all that stuff. So that network continues to just compound and grow every single day, and it's you know, it's it's more incremental. But if you look, if you zoom out over the past twelve months, I mean the, the numbers are pretty impressive. So Falcon's great. I like what Render's doing as well with a decentralized GPU market, I think with AI and machine learning and all these things coming into play right now, uh, GPUs are actually scarce resource and uh, we have to be more efficient at using them. So that's where I spend my time right now. It's, you know, Solana, Filecoin, Render, and then Bitcoin, Ethereum. And I, I think it's a fight of quality. Yeah. Can you give a just a quick TLDR on Filecoin? Because it's a project I've known about for a long time, but I've never dug into and I, I don't know a ton about. So for the listeners and myself who who aren't super familiar with it, how would you explain Filecoin? Filecoin is effectively, let's start off with like IPFS was a, a effectively a content addressing protocol where you can, uh, the simplest way to explain it to someone is, is, you know, in HTTP, you point to a server and then you fetch a file from that server. And, it, you know, if you're in Africa and the server is in, you know, Alaska, you have to go through like 25 hops to get there, get the data, move it back. It's very, very, it's very cumbersome because, you know, it's telling, it's telling the, the, the browser where to fetch it from. With IPFS, which is built by Protocol Labs, which also built Filecoin, you, what you do is you, you say, hey, I'm looking for this file and you can find the closest location that file is to you. So it could be next door and it pulls the file across. And so, you know, it's also there's, there's layers are built around it, so it's a lot more uncensorable, etc. And so the IPFS uh, protocol basically was built first, and then 
the team decided to build the the you know the, the Filecoin, which is the storage network, right? And so now you've got the ability to address content. Then you have to look at the network where the information is stored. And there's about three and a half thousand, I think, miners out there that are putting, you know, effectively, you know, a miner has to take a hard drive, lock some file coins, some fill to provide a guarantee that it's going to be there. And there's proof of replication, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and there's a bunch of proofs that you run to ensure that the data is where, you know, if the miner is earning rewards for storing that data or, or getting a fee, they need to prove that the data is there. And so file coins both a pretty, uh, there's a pretty deep stack in, in, data storage um and it's it, it works on contracts right so you don't store the data forever you say i want the data available on these seven different continents with these seven providers for you know 20 years and then you pay for that right so uh you know it, it's really about giving um it's about enabling a marketplace where you can buy uh basically very cheap storage uh for data and as data the data sets get bigger and bigger i think the demand for filecoin is going to just it's going to explode you know, Filecoin right now, the network is, I think, I want to say like not even, or maybe a half a percent utilized. So maybe, you know, let me think, what is it? It's, no, it's actually about, it's probably, it's probably a couple of percentage points utilized, right? So they've got so much excess capacity on that network. It's dirt cheap right now. It's cheaper than Amazon. It's cheaper than any of the cloud providers. It's thing was, it's like Airbnb for hard drives. It's kind of the easy way of saying it. Like, you, you know, you connect hard drives to the network and you store data for people. It tends to be more professional companies doing it and, and miners doing it, but it actually is very useful, right? If you want to, right now, if you want to go store data somewhere and encrypt it and shard it and put it somewhere where you, you can access it, you got to go set up an account with Amazon or any cloud provider, put a credit card in, et cetera. With Filecoin, you just like, you know, go to a provider, pay for, and then you go, they store it for you. So it really takes a lot of the friction out of the process. And for developers, you know, even enabling users to store their own data, this becomes possible with Filecoin because you can just provision a user account and then they have the keys to access the data. Interesting. So what do you think has slowed it down from kind of taking off? Do you think it's just S3, like using Amazon S3 is, is so much is easier or less taboo in a traditional business than using a cryptocurrency? Or, or what do you think is holding it back? I mean, there's a couple of technical stuff that the guys are working on. Um, and I think what's holding it back right now is... You know, Amazon basically gives away storage for free to their big customers right now. Uh, it's part of a, it's like a loss leader mechanism. So when you go buy AWS and compute and all the other services, they just throw it in for free. So people aren't looking at like, they aren't looking at from a, yeah, but you have to be a big spender, but they're not looking at from a cost base, from a, you know, well, they don't look at the cost savings as much because they're already getting savings. Um, through through the vendor relationships, Th- that works well in a Web two environment where the data is highly centralized. But in, in a decentralized world, the data needs to be stored somewhere, and centralizing it back on Amazon makes no sense. So I think we're waiting for more decentralized products to take off. And if, if you just look at some of the large data sets that are coming out of machine learning and AI and generative art, generative video, all that stuff is not going to be stored on Amazon because these pl- these people don't need to use Amazon for compute they're going to use it for uh, for storage and storage is expensive if you buy it by itself so i think i think within two years we'll start seeing or maybe even 12 months we'll probably start seeing a lot more usage from you know i could generate a boatload of you know animated videos and generative art videos generative content and have to store it somewhere and it's just becoming impossible to store in your hard drives because we're talking like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data and that's just one person right so yeah yeah so you've mentioned 
AI a few times. And I'm imagining AI is going to be one of the things that drives a demand for computing space among like a million other things. We're seeing, obviously this year, we've seen in the past six months, the first tastes of this consumer grade AI that is, I think, blowing everyone's minds, myself included. And, and you know, you, I talk to people who aren't using it yet and I'm just, I'm like floored. It's like, it, it, it makes me feel like they're not using Google. What are you, I, I mean, there's a million directions we can take the AI conversation. I'd love to know how you're thinking about it, how you're integrating it into your businesses and sort of like how you're thinking about the broad AI landscape as we're kind of hurtling through this, this what feels like a very special moment in time as it, it's getting broadly adopted. Yeah, so the current company I founded and I'm CEO of is Waitrum. And we built this company about three years ago, just under three years, two and a half years, and about 18 months. So when we first launched it, we plugged in GPT-3 into it to do transcriptions and summaries um, for, our, for the video clips. Um, you know, for those who are watching, uh, Waitrum is a video conferencing platform. We, we're actually effectively taking on Zoom now and, and, and Google Meets and whatever else. Uh, but we, we built it from the ground up using AI. So we've got some really cool features in the hopper that's coming out soon that we're rolling out. Um, in the next month, things like catch up. So if your team's having a meeting and you walk in 15 minutes late, instead of walking in cold and trying to figure out what happened, we give an, you know, an AI generated summary of what happened in the meeting based on the transcript. So the AI said, Hey, you know, Vinny said this, uh, Bob said this, you know, John said that, um, and, you know, and summarize, right? So you don't have to have all the details, but it's able to give you a summary. And so you can catch up with where things are, any action items that were taken, any decisions that were made before you get there. You can read it up and then, you know, 30 seconds later, you walk into the meeting and you know what's going on. You don't have to interrupt people. Uh, so you got to quick catch up. And you can do it in the meeting as well. If you, you, know, you kind of like dozed off for a bit, uh, you can just go into the chat box and say, hey, summarize the last, you know, five minutes and it'll tell you. So we're building AI into the platform very, very natively. We're doing things like, you know, you and I can be having a conversation and I could say, hey, let's meet for lunch next week and it'll pull up the calendar and say, hey, you know, this is, you know, and suggest a time and you click a button and it sends out invites to both of us. Uh, tasks, follow-ups, you know, it can populate your task list, can populate your your, your follow-up um, list, whatever workflow systems you're using, integrating into, you know, we're integrated into Slack right now. We have Google Calendar integration um, and a lot more coming Notion as well. Um, so, you know, again, Notion's great because, like, you could go in the meeting and ask the, the agent, like, the intelligent agent, can you tell me who the head of this department is and their email address? And it'll look in the, the knowledge base of the company and tell you. At scale, it becomes even more interesting when you've got hundreds and hundreds of customer meetings running per day or, or at least, you know, internal meetings running per day. Imagine having full summaries of that and transcripts and the ability for the AI to look between two meetings and say, hey, you know what? The logistics meeting said that this product would be ready on a certain date for shipping. Um, but in manufacturing, it's actually, you know, they're way behind. And so these guys are scheduling and booking trucks and paying for that. And we know that these two departments aren't talking to each other right now. And so they're misaligned. And, you know, it's impossible for a single human or even a team of humans to monitor every conversation in a company. I mean, you know, and for the benefit of other companies, like if you're having 5,000 know, video calls a day, it's impossible. But if you have an AI at least paying attention to all this and seeing what's going on across the company, it becomes very powerful. There's a lot of other powerful things you can do with it. Um, you know, you can do 
tone detection. You could see, hey, people are upset about something. You could flag that up to the CEO. You could say, hey, people are frustrated. You know, and, and there's obviously privacy concerns and constraints, and that always gets set at a company level. So the company decides what level of privacy it wants to afford its employees, and every company in every country in the world is different. But most companies, uh, big corporates, you know, all your calls are monitored, all your emails are monitored, all your communication monitored. And I think if you apply an AI to a video conferencing platform, you can actually produce some very productive things because, you know, privacy is something which I think we're afforded in our personal capacity. But when we're doing work for a company, we're trying to get the job done. You want to be as transparent as much of the company as you need to be based upon what the rules of the company are, right? So um, some companies are highly secretive and very compartmentalized. Other companies are very open. And just even something simple like, you know, hey, the team meeting was missed yesterday. Here's a summary of what happened to the people who didn't attend. Uh, That can even be automated. We can do things like highlight reels where we can do the all hands meeting Here's a five minute clip of what was said. And you can summarize 20 minutes down to five minutes. And this is using AI just to do all of this. Not, not even, there's no handwork involved. So we're basically, you know, we're, we're trying to build the next generation AI video conferencing platform. So as you speak, two things came to mind. First, you're reminding me as, as you explain this, this business, a little bit of companies that didn't adopt the internet fast enough. And eventually mm-hmm. every company used the internet. Obviously, but there was a time when the uptick was slow yep. and people weren't sure how to integrate it. Now it's just the most obvious, most disruptive thing in the world. It seems like we're moving into a space where AI is about to go do that for every industry. And you're focused on meetings clearly, but do you think we're going to live in a world where this is going to basically, if you have a business and you're not using AI, you're obsolete in 10 years? No, you're just, you're just very uh, unprofitable. So, so, so what's going to happen is AI is going to basically create a, a massive deflationary curve for us because companies are going to be able to cut costs across the board. I mean, it's sad to say, but copywriters are pretty much out of the job these days. I mean, ChatGPT has proven that. I, I know lots of people using it now for copywriting. Copywriters are out of the job, and I think it's tough. They have to go find something else to do. A lot of other jobs will be made redundant as well. A lot, a lot of like graphic AI people are struggling right now because you know one person can do the work of three or five using uh, using this technology. So you're going to see job losses. You're going to see um, cost cutting uh, happening because now it's all fully automated. And that also has a, a deflationary effect on prices. So prices start going down. And so the companies that don't adopt the AI can't compete because they're, you know, if you replace labor costs with machines, uh, we've seen this in every industry over hundreds of years, Prices go down, <laughs> and that's what's going to happen. I mean, the copywriting thing is is actually you know it's it's no it's no small point. I mean, I could create a, a new site today and not have a single as a single person. I could create a news website and not have a single human working for me writing a story. I could just get AI to write every single story. Hey, you know, write a story today about what happened at this shooting, or whatever, and it would just go and read all the other stories. It would just regurgitate it right and and do its own research. So now reporters are looking, you know, like their their jobs in trouble too. It's interesting, right? So like, what what can be automated? I'd say it's probably whatever can be automated will be automated. <laughs> yeah. So I've been thinking about this a bit. I, I got a letter in the mail. California wanted some money from like five or six years ago when I wasn't living here, and it was a kind of a complicated thing with some equity I'd earned. And uh, I fired. I was writing the email to my accountant, and then instead of sending it to my accountant, I put it into GPT four. And it explained it like very nuanced, like the whole situation and like basically told me exactly what I needed to do. And that was an email that was something that didn't go to my accountant and something I wasn't billed for. 
And it's got me thinking a lot about like what jobs are safe in a space where this thing can do most most things. And and the, where I got to was it seems like if you pair uh, the AI with a like very specific skill set, whether it's like you're a mathematician or you're a dev, obviously can write great code, but it does take a bit of a conductor to kind of put the code together and massage things and get the final output. So I guess my question is is like in this world where AI can do a lot of these tasks. What skill sets or how do you think someone can prepare to to work in this environment and, and not be obsolete? Yeah, I think, you know, if I look at an analogy in like the Ford Motor Companies and, and, the, and the car manufacturers, you, you don't want to be the person making the cars. You want to be the person operating the machinery. And so at the end of the day, it's still a machine. And so learning how to write prompts, learning how to use ChatGPT and AI tools is probably the next phase. Like we need more people using it. It doesn't do it itself. It still needs people to work on it. So I think that's one way to prepare is just you know move up the stack, right? Think of it as a tool. And if you're a copywriter, that's great. Now instead of writing the copy, start being creative about the stories. What do you want, what story do you want to tell? How do you want to you know, make it more succinct? And think about tools around that. If you're an artist. Think about how do you, um, yeah. I think I think creativity is kind of the highest calling as humans that we have. We, you know, creativity in all aspects, right? We, we're very good at building systems, but that's a little the function of creativity as well. Like you got to think, uh, how can I do this? How can I do that? So I think creativity is actually what we're all, you know, we all should be aspiring to to do, and then and using tools to achieve whatever our creative minds you know come up with. Yeah. I think those are all great points. I'm I'm interested. Have you integrated? I know you've got a few different businesses: Gift, Civic Key. Have you been thinking about AI in those, the context of those businesses? And well, I, I sold I sold Gift in 2014 to First Data. That was okay, a good, that was a good exit. Um, so I'm not involved anymore. I'm sure they're thinking about AI. Civic is very much focusing on, you know, in this world of AI with all these deep fakes and fake news and and machine generated content. It's like, how do you actually Make sure there's a human on the other end of it. And that's what we've been working on for years. I, I think the problem needs to get worse before the solution becomes more apparent. Uh, and so AI is going to definitely accelerate the fake news, fake identity problem. And I think that's actually a good thing for Civic, <laughs> funny enough. Yeah, I think finding reliable sources in today's day and age is uh, increasingly challenging. I, so I've been watching from the sideline of the Twitter acquisition by Elon and some of the things he's doing don't seem to make a ton of sense, like the API going to $42,000 per month, the $8 per person. Uh, there's a lot of things he's been doing that have just been super controversial over there. Do you have any insights into what Elon is cooking up with Twitter? Elon's looking at his business and like, this is a great asset. We provide a ton of value. If you want to use our infrastructure, you have to pay for it because we have to pay the bills. I mean... In the market will bear what the market will bear. If you're willing to pay them, that's great. If only if it's a more exclusive group. I mean, I'm sure they've done the the, the, the math on this, or maybe he's just using four two zero. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I have no insights yet. All right, all right. So this is an NFT show. I know you're working on an NFT project. Can you give uh, the listeners a little taste of what you've been up to and, and where they can find it? So yeah, my my new project is Explorers. Yeah, I'm just like I'm one of the co-founders um, of the project. You know, started nearly a year and a half ago, nearly two years ago. It's basically a game, uh, but it's NFT based. So you get these characters; they're explorers, they're you know sea sea explorers. So you get like scuba divers and pirates and whatever else. And and then there's a whole game mechanic built into it. So you got explorers like digital, 
the mint is happening soon next month um and you know, there's a whole game built into it and you can you can stake the, the stake uh, your nfts um if you go to docs.explorers.digital it'll you know can give you all the great artwork and what we're doing it's really high quality it's a high quality nft project high quality art and there's actually a real game that gets played behind it so um, and then the game, you know, we're going we're gonna to do a lot more cool stuff and improve the game over time as well. And, and games, I think we have lots of game mechanics coming in. Uh, it's, you know, whenever people launch these projects, they always launch it like with a promise of something to come. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp of like, I'd rather deliver a little bit up front. And so instead of launching an NFT project where you buy it, and then, you know, we, then we go use the money to go build a game. We've actually put our own money into building the game and building the, 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 the system around it. And we said, okay, if you want to play the game, you the, the the explorer and you have to go and, and get one and so we're also focusing on distribution as many people as possible can can get one of these things and it's not bots just buying it all up which is typically what happens and so we're using civic for identity to verify for you know, to prevent bots but you know I think it's really worth it I think people people need to um, try and you know like get the opportunity to play play a game without you know an nft based web3 game when they actually get their the nft not have to wait six months and 12 months and get rugged uh and so i think uh i you know and, we, and we're going to launch it at a, at a pretty low price um not, nothing crazy it's going to be on the solana the solana chain and i i'm excited about it so we launch that next month that's awesome and how many of these how many NFTs is it a, is it a 1k or 10k uh, I think we're going to be seven, 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 seven. Okay, awesome. Well, it's nice to hear a project coming out that uh, has a functioning product, <laughs> because <laughs> because normally I feel like uh, you buy the NFT and then you just pray. So that's that's awesome to hear. I have a couple rapid fire questions that I usually wrap the show up with. Go for it. Yeah. So I'm curious, what was your first NFT purchase? My first was I think it was one of the uh, one of the spells of Genesis cards. Okay, awesome. I'm not familiar with that project. Did it do all right? Uh, you know, it's still around. There's, there's, it's still around. There's a bunch of people trading it on this Ember Vault thing, and I, I haven't checked the prices recently, but it's still around. But it's, I think it's one of the first, if not the, I think it's maybe the second NFT project out there. And there's a whole like, you know, it was on the bit, it was on colored coins on the Bitcoin blockchain, so uh, it was pre kitties and everything else. I think it'll be valuable one day once you know things play out more in NFT world. But it's definitely going to go into a museum somewhere because the stuff is like super rare. Awesome. Do Do you have a what, favorite NFT or uh, something in your wallet that like is your you'll never let go of? I mean, I don't really sell NFTs. It's, it's kind of funny because I've I've uh, I basically I'm a nip. I think I've sold three NFTs in my life. <laughs> I've, I basically only bought NFTs, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm a collector. So. Gotcha. All right. Do you have? Yeah, I own hundreds of NFTs. So I know you were for a while. You were like one of maybe the biggest Moonbird collector. I think that's. I'm still. I still. I'm still. I still am. I think I'm, I'm still a top ten holder. Let me look. It's changed a bit with the blur farming. I know people have been. There's been some accounts with like several hundreds and crazy stuff like that. But I remember in the beginning you were like definitely a top ten. I'm, I'm guessing you probably still are because I think I'm still. I'm still. I'm, I'm still in the top ten right now. Oh, nice. Awesome. And, and at the current prices, I may have to go up a little higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have a Grail NFT? Do you have like a Fidenza? Is there something that you've always wanted that you've never gotten around to, to scooping up? No, because if, if it was, I would have bought it already, I guess. 
<laughs> nice. All right. I got one last one for you. Earlier in this episode, we were talking about Bitcoin and you said you gave kind of a price range. You think it'll probably go up uh, in the next 18 months. You said you're not mad bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, you said you're bullish, but I'm not mad bullish was the quote. I'm curious, what are you mad bullish on today? Oh, man. I, 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 here's, the, here's the issue. I think crypto has got a lot of issues, uh, regulatory and otherwise. I think it's also very dependent on the macro situation. You know, I think that the macro situation needs to play out more before you can become mad bullish. I, I think it's just healthy to be in a, in, in a spot where you're, at least I am cautiously optimistic, but, you know, not recklessly optimistic. And I think uh, people get wrecked by being recklessly optimistic. Um, and we're still in a bear market and it hasn't come out yet. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just balanced. And I think that, you know, having a good amount of crypto exposure is fine. I think... Um, I think we're going to be in a good spot uh, in the long term, but who knows what the distance and time is between now and then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, look, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Can you give the listeners a little handoff on where they can find find more of you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, on, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Vinny Lingham, uh, and uh, you can generally find me there, and I can, I'll repost like, like this, for example, in any podcast I'm on, so you, you can follow me there, and you'll get, you'll get the up-to-dates. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to having you back on again one day. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Great being here. Cheers. Nucci and his guests are not registered investment advisors. All opinions expressed on this show should not be relied upon for investment decisions, nor is it investment advice. The show is solely for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.